Welcome, friends, to this very special episode of The Five By, your one-stop shop for quick board game reviews. Today, dear listeners, we are going to be recommending to you some games that you can play while you're at a cafe or a bar. Ruel is going to be showing off his green thumb with Planted, a game of nature and nurture, and then you and I are going to put on our boots because we're going to go digging for treasure. As we continue on, we're going to connect with Aaron, who's going to tell us about a little bird he helped in Featherlight. Finally, Sarah is going to walk through a few suggestions in different games that you can play in a cafe or a bar setting. But first, Meeple Lady is going to walk us through a classic card game called Pusoi Dos. Enjoy. Two months ago, I took a trip to the Philippines, my motherland, and recently played a card game again that for many, many years had been a fixture in my everyday life. I played it a lot in high school, during lunch breaks, and in college, those late nights in the dorms, hanging out with friends, doing everything else but studying. It's also perfect for playing at the bar or coffee shop. It requires very little space on the table, and a standard 52-card deck. I know you all have random decks of cards in your home. The game, my friends, is called Pusoidos. Pusoidos, also known as Filipino poker, is a variation of Big Two a popular card-shedding game that's played among four people. It's a game popular across East Asia and Southeast Asia, and if you grew up in the Los Angeles suburbs among Asian immigrant communities, Pusoidos is a game you learn from an early age. Pusoidos, loosely translated, means heart two. To play Pusoidos, first shuffle your deck and deal out all cards to four players so that each person has 13 cards in their hand. The first player to discard all their cards wins the game. So since this game is very popular among different groups, you first have to establish the hierarchy of the suits. The hierarchy version I grew up with is playing diamond clubs, hearts and spades, or what we like to call Daily City High School, an area in San Francisco that's known for its high concentration of Filipino residents, 33% in fact. I've also played a version that ranked them as diamonds, hearts, spades, then clubs. So let's stick with the hierarchy I use, DCHS, for the purposes of this review. The lowest card would now be the Three of Diamonds, and the highest card would be the Two of Spades. Twos outrank everything in Pusoidos, and within each number set, one suit would outrank the other. The person with the Three of Diamonds goes first. Now they can play the Three of Diamonds by itself, or in a poker hand. A pair, a three of a kind, a straight, flush, or even a full house as long as it contains the three of diamonds. The next player to the left of them must then play a matching hand, but of a higher value. If the first person played a pair of threes, and the next person can either play a pair of threes with one card containing a higher suited three, or a pair of fours or anything higher. Each player must always play a higher hand of cards similar to what's been led, or they must pass. If all players pass and it gets back to the person who led the original hand, They get to choose anything to play next. A single card? A straight? You name it. The goal of the game is to be the first player to get rid of all your cards. Sometimes you get a really strong hand, but more often than not, you don't, because it's only 13 cards. Much like other card games, the strategy lies in how you assemble and play your cards. Do you pass early so that you'll get a chance to play a really strong straight or flush later? Or do you keep churning out singles and pairs? Timing is also key. You have to have a strong card, 
or cards so that you can make everyone else pass and take the lead. It's so satisfying playing your second-to-last hand that contains the two of spades and then slamming down the rest of your cards for the win, especially when the majority of your opponents still have a grip of cards in their hands. You technically can play Pusoidos with three players, where you randomly remove one card from the game, but ideally, it's a four-player game. All cards are discarded into one small pile on the table in between the players, hence a great bar game. And since a deck of cards is inexpensive, nobody is worried about grubby food hands or sweaty pine glasses making a mess while playing the game. Games of Pusoidos are fun and fast-paced. They're never very long, making it easy to socialize with friends and families. You can even play a bunch of games throughout the night, over the course of multiple beers. The rules are simple to learn, and there isn't a language barrier to overcome when playing, which is probably why it's such a popular game among the communities that I grew up in. You don't need to spend a lot of money on this game. Someone in the group always has a deck of cards they can bring, and many people are already familiar with the suits and numbers in a deck of playing cards. I'm always down to play this game, even if we're hanging out at a local dive bar, where I'll be ordering pretty much anything except an IPA. And that's Pusoidos! This is Meeple Lady for the Five Buy. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Looking to beautify and improve your home, you begin the process of growing and caring for a collection of houseplants. You may not have the greenest of thumbs, but with the right combination of plant food, water, and sunlight, as well as tools and decorations, you hope to grow a variety of common and exotic houseplants. Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Planted, a game of nature and nurture by Phil Walker-Harding with art by Hannah Bailey. Planted was published in 2022 by Buffalo Games. In Planted, two to four players manage their collection of houseplants. On your turn, you'll select one card from your hand to perform one of three actions. If it's a resource card, you'll discard it and take the matching resource from the supply. If it's an item or decoration card, you'll play it below your player board. Finally, you can say Nursery and discard it to take a plant card and place it above your player board. Players exchange their hands of cards with the player on their left and repeat the drafting process. The round ends after all eight cards have been drafted, then players use the resources they've collected to grow their plants. Plants score at the end of the game depending on how much they've grown, and any decorations collected will score too. A new hand of eight cards is dealt to each player, and they begin another round. After four rounds, the player with the most points wins. Previously on the 5 Eye, I've talked about my love of games by designer Phil Walker-Harding. Michelle and I find them on our tabletop more often than not. They're typically light in rules overhead and offer enough depth that we find ourselves replaying our favorites, from Baron Park, reviewed by Ruth in episode 14, to Super Mega Lucky Box, which I reviewed in episode 124. I love that his games always make sense when you're deep in the action, and Planted is no exception. I'm not a gardener by any means, but even I know that to successfully grow a plant, I'll need to feed it, water it, and give it sunlight on the regular. And that's why Planted is such a delight. The gameplay flows logically, and it's easy to teach and learn. Collect one of three resources, food, water, or sunlight, to grow your plants, and at the end of the round, exchange the necessary resources for a plant to place a growth token on them. Different plants need different resources. One may need more water than another, while another may need more sunlight or food. And depending on the plant, each growth token placed on them will score various points. Fans of Walker Harding will recognize the Sushi Go style card drafting implanted, but now there's resource management and a bit of engine building added to the mix. Along with food, water, and sunlight, there are cards representing items and decorations, 
collect items to help you get more resources, or collect decorations to score more points. Like Sushi Go, you're drafting a card to be used immediately. You'll usually take something you need, but there are times when you might draft something your opponent needs. Unlike Sushi Go, there's some light engine building implanted. Play an item card and it stays in your tableau and it can give you extra resources based on what you collect in future turns. The possibility of a big round of resources is there if you get the right cards. Additionally, there are decorations that can score extra points at the end of the game, depending on what plants you've managed to grow. You might draft one of these cards, but that might mean passing up on resources that you need to grow your plants. Different types of plants, such as hanging or standing, might score extra points depending on which decorations you choose. And there's one additional resource in the form of green thumbs that you can exchange for a resource of your choice at the rate of 2 for 1. Even with these new additions, I feel like both games are on a similar complexity level. Sushi Go has different items to collect and score, while Planted keeps things streamlined with only plants to be grown. The gameplay is enhanced by a stellar production. Buffalo Games is a well-established jigsaw puzzle company, and I'm guessing they use their connections to create such an impressive package in Planted. It features lovely art with wooden and plastic tokens, and my only nitpicks of Planted would be the somewhat flimsy material used for the cards and the lack of a solo mode. The cards can be sleeved to be sturdier, and, thankfully, regular Twitch and Discord user James Brazil came up with a solo variant that you can find on BGG. His solo rules offer a clever alternative to the card drafting mechanism that, as Rodney Smith would say, I'll leave for you to discover on your own. Planted, a game of nature and nurture, is another in the recent trend of games with nature themes, and I'm all for it. Sure, I still enjoy sci-fi, fantasy, western zombies, and other well-worn settings, but these days I'm more excited about anything outdoor or nature-related. And while Planted is on the lighter side of things, games such as Cascadia, Parks, Wingspan, Canopy, and others have shown that nature-themed games can offer various complexity levels for all types of gamers. Thanks to my Discord community for pointing out that Planted had made its way to Target shelves a few months ago. I lucked out and I got it at a discount and it's been worth every penny, which is something I often say about a game by Phil Walker-Harding, the other being Praise Be. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Yar, mateys. Today, we search for treasure. In a, in, a, in a game that has nothing to do with pirates. <clears throat> Today, we're going to be taking a look at the second game in the Stephen Rhodes trilogy of games. We're going to see how far you can push things in Let's Dig for Treasure, designed by Ben Stoll, artwork by, that's right, Stephen Rhodes, and published by Dynamite Games. Two to six intrepid explorers can gather around the table and search for treasure in their local cemetery. And this quick and easy to pick up, push your luck game. Now let's start with setup. In the box, you get hundreds and twenties of cards, which you will shuffle, divide into three equal parts, and, and that's it. That's, that's all you have to do to start the game. No, really, that's it. You just have to shuffle and divide into three stacks. On your turn, you can dig or draw cards from any of the three stacks in the center of the play area. You reveal what you drew, and you can push your luck. Uh, see what I did there? By continuing to draw cards, or you can stop. 
If you choose to continue, you have to be careful because if you dig up the dreaded evil skeleton card or you collect a second worms card, then your turn will end and you get nothing. That's it. Nada. You pushed too hard. If you don't bust, you can choose to end your turn and you score the cards that you drew by adding them to your scoring pile. Some of the cards will have special effects when you draw them from the deck, while others will have special scoring conditions for the end of the game if you can fulfill what's being asked of you. When one of the three decks is empty, the game ends, and everyone counts up their points. And now, here's the really interesting part. You'll never guess what's going to happen. Yes, most points wins at that point. It's good. You're paying attention. Nice. Just like other games in this trilogy, this game doesn't do anything revolutionary. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It doesn't need to. This is a very good, straightforward, push-your-luck game. It plays a whole bunch of players. There's very few games that I can think of that can go up to six. And games tend to be about 20 maybe 30 minutes. The game also has a very small footprint on any table. I mean, you only have to really keep track of three decks and wherever your scoring pile is. This is a really good quick palate cleanser game in between other longer games or a really good quick lunchtime game that you can kind of play anywhere. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the Stephen Rhodes artwork. Again, his artwork is so much fun, just like in his previous game, Let's Summon Demons, which I talked about before. You have so much fun just laughing and paying attention to all of the little details that these kids are digging up in the cemetery. I don't want to give anything away. You're going to have to pay attention to that for yourself. If I have to complain about anything... Uh, my only complaint would be that the cards have black borders, so there could be an issue with wear, considering how much you shuffle and draw cards. But it's offset by the fact that this game is like 20 bucks. So if we have to replace the game, it's not going to break the bank. I'll be honest with you, this isn't my favorite game in the trilogy, but it's a really solid, quick game that I can set up and play with anyone in minutes. If you like push-your-luck games, I think this is worth your time. Now, I can already hear you asking the question. Jose, I'm like, yeah. Are you going to review the third game in this series? Yes. Yes, I will. But that's going to be a different discussion for another day, so you're just going to have to tune in for another episode of The Five By. My name's Jose, and you can find me on Instagram at SirBrezworth, and on Twitter at SirBrezworth1. Come by and say hi. Let me know what treasures you found. Hey, it's Aaron from Game Enthuse. And going along with the theme of best game to play in a bar or a cafe, the game that came to mind for me was Featherlight. Featherlight is a wonderful player hand management game designed by Sabrina and Anno von Kansen. Featherlight was also published by WizKids. A pochu bird is featured very prominently on the box for Featherlight. And if you know anything about pochu birds, you know that they are very 
bright and wide-eyed birds. They look kind of goofy, but also kind of creepy at the same time. It's an interesting mix. Anyway, the backdrop of Featherlight is that a little potu bird, Polly, has unfortunately fallen out of their nest, and their feathers have flown all over the place. So as the players, it's up to you to collect different feathers, which all have varying scoring conditions. So one of the two decks that are available for all to play with has completely run out. And like many games, whoever has the most points wins. The cards in Featherlight feature seven different colors. Red, purple, blue, green, yellow, white, and black. The setup in Featherlight is fairly simple. Each player will be given five different cards, and you can also remove a number of cards from the game based on the number of players. Once every player has five cards that will make up their hand, there'll be six cards placed face up for all to see. Those six cards are called the nest. So the scoring you're going to be doing is based upon the cards that are in your hand in addition to the cards that are in the nest. Some of the scoring conditions might be things like 35 points if there are four identically colored cards in the nest, meaning four out of those six cards everybody can see. If they're all the same color at the end of the game, you could score 35 points. Another card might say each black card in your hand lets you score eight points. Some cards might even have two, six, or even 10 points just to have it in your hand. Some cards let you earn a number of points based on having a complete set of all seven colors. Now, of course, that's seven colors based on the five that are in your hand, also counting the ones that are in the nest. Some cards let you score points based on having an even or odd number of a certain type of color. Bear in mind that many of the cards allow you to score based on cards that are of a different color. So a green card might say for every set of blue and yellow that you have between your hand and what's out in the nest, you score seven points. The interesting thing about Featherlight is that everything you're doing is building to what you're ultimately going to be scoring at the end. So the cards in your hand at the beginning are not necessarily going to be the cards you're going to have at the end. I wouldn't recommend you get too attached to what you have in your hand because chances are it's going to be changing. In addition to the six cards that make up the nest, the remaining cards will be divided as evenly as possible into two separate decks. So on your turn, you can either draw a card from one of those two decks and discard a card from your hand, whatever card that you just drew from one of the decks would be placed on top of one of these six cards face up in the nest. It could be the one that you just drew. That's perfectly okay. Or you can swap a card between one that's in your hand and one that's in the nest. You can't fake swap and put back the same card that you just took from the nest though. And you're gonna be doing that throughout the game until one of those two decks runs out. One of those two decks runs out, the game is over. At that point, everybody would simply score up the five cards in their hand. Keep in mind that those five cards can also involve the cards that are in the nest. What are my thoughts on Featherlight? I've played Featherlight more solo than I have with others. It is a fun game. It can be a little tricky because you are starting off with things that are going to be vastly different by the time you get to the end, with your hand being in sort of constant flux to some degree, in addition to what's in the nest really being in constant flux. The game is fun, but it can be a little frustrating because of just the pure randomness, because the cards you get are random, because the nest is random, and the scoring conditions on the cards themselves can create random dependencies. Sometimes it's just dependent upon the scoring condition of that card. Sometimes it's that card and other cards in your hand. Other times it's the cards in your hand plus what's in the nest. Sometimes it's just the nest. It can be very random. There's that word again. It just means that no matter how much strategy you really have, there are so many things you can't dictate that for people who would like to have a lot of control, 
it might not be for them. Even though I enjoyed it, there were people that I played with who did not really appreciate the randomness and the idea that there was so much that they had no agency to do anything about, which can be said of a lot of games. You know, getting the nest to where you need it to be exactly and then having it all fall apart at the very end of the game could be a little bit frustrating. If you're okay with that, Featherlight might be the game for you. If you're not okay with that, something a little more strategic might be up your alley. But as for me, I enjoy Featherlight. I think it's fun multiplayer. I think it's fun solo. And it would be a worthy companion to a visit by yourself or with others to a bar and a cafe. Thank you for listening to the Five by Thank you for listening to me. Take care, stay safe, and be blessed. Games you can play in a bar or cafe. That's the theme of this episode, and I think the games that work well in those two settings can be pretty different. Take noise, for example. In a cafe, you'd want a relatively quiet game so as not to disturb other customers. But bars tend to be noisier spaces, where a rambunctious game with lots of laughter might be a better fit. I've had great experiences in bars with party games like Just One or Monikers, both of which might be too loud for a coffee shop. Like noise, concentration can be a factor. I have a hard time focusing in noisy environments, and I would never bring, say, Tigris and Euphrates to a bar. Your mileage may vary, of course. Maybe you're part of a weekly Tigris and Euphrates club at your local watering hole, and if you are, drop me a note because that sounds cool. But in general, I find the more of a brain burner, the quieter environment I need to play it. If there are frequent disruptions, I prefer something light enough not to need much strategy. Save those crunchy Euro games for an afternoon in a quiet cafe. A game's physical components are also really important. In my experience, the average board game is difficult to fit on the average cafe table. When I played Pandemic Legacy Season 1, our group tried at first to meet in local bars, but it was such a challenge just to get everything on the table, and there was no place to put your hand, and that was before we started opening boxes. We gave up on that pretty quick. I have had some great experiences with games that have a big board in bars and cafes. I had a great time once playing Fog of Love with a friend in an ice cream parlor of all places. And there was a game that comes to mind of terraforming Mars on a ridiculously small table in a hotel cafe. It really didn't fit on that little table, but we made it work, and we had a great time doing it. But more often, it ends up like the time three friends and I tried to play Shakespeare in a sports bar. We went early in the day so it wasn't crowded, but I remember diving under the wobbly table over and over to rescue components that had fallen off, and then all of us sitting there trying to figure out where they belonged on the board. Speaking of which, when playing games away from home, there's always a risk of losing or damaging components, especially in a cafe or bar where food and drink are central to the experience. Games without a lot of fiddly bits are good, or games with plastic components that wouldn't be damaged by a spilled drink. Roll and writes like Quicks are great, the score sheets are disposable, as long as you have a box lid or something to roll the dice in. I think my worst ever experience playing a board game in a bar was with Dead of Winter. We were at a board game night in a bar. The game was too big for the table. The lighting was too dim to see all those cards with tiny text. It was hard to keep track of everything with the noise. And some guy kept trying to quarterback our game, and he wasn't even playing. In retrospect, I think that was probably more of an issue with that group, but still, not an experience I want to repeat. That kibitzer does bring up an interesting point, though. Observability. Playing a board game in public means people will see you playing a game in public. Some of them will be curious and ask questions. I've had many interesting conversations with strangers who asked me about the game I was playing. 
A game that looks nice on the table and is easy to explain, like Azul or Forbidden Desert, makes those conversations go easier. I was even the interrupting stranger once when I saw some people playing King of New York in the work cafeteria. I'd played King of Tokyo, but not King of New York, and I had to know more, so I ran over to talk to them. I remember they were happy to talk until I got a little overenthusiastic and tried to invite myself into their game group. Oops. Thinking about these criteria, I think in all my collection, the best games for a bar or cafe might be Santorini and Can't Stop. They're both quick, not much setup, durable components, don't take up that much space. Can't Stop has the advantage of being all plastic and impervious to spills, but Santorini looks so good on the table. Either one is a great game to play in a public space. But ultimately, the best game to play in a cafe or bar is the game you and your friends love the game that makes you happy to be together. I think the best game I've ever played in a bar was Galaxy Trucker, which, based on everything I've just said, should not have worked at all. It's a table hog, lots of setup, tons of fiddly components, a table jar can ruin your tableau. But that game was one of the most fun times I've ever had with board games. We were playing with the rule to keep one hand behind your back while grabbing components, and people kept coming up and asking us what we were doing. We couldn't stop to explain. I remember yelling, can't talk, timed round. Finally, we were laughing so hard we had to stop and reset the round. It was the best time. Both the friends I played with have moved away, and I don't even play games in bars anymore, and I still wish we could do it again. And that's my thoughts on what makes a game good for bars and cafes. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter or Instagram, at Sarah Ovenall, or on Mastodon, at Ovenall at Dice.Camp. Especially if you want to see a photo of me playing Terraforming Mars crammed onto a small cafe table. I'll post it the day this episode drops. You've been listening to The 5 by your monthly source for board game reviews. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at 5bygames.com. If you like what we do here and want to support our work, visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash 5bygames. And as always, thank you for listening. For more shows like this, check out the Goonhammer Media Network. More info at media.goonhammer.com.